So there's something about your nature that gets transferred into your work. So I cannot understand at all how that would be severed from questions of faith. You are listening to the Artisan Tree Podcast, a conversation through art and faith, episode 15. Today we have with us visual artist Linnea Sprancy, whose work defies definition and moves beyond the bounds of convention, a freedom that mirrors and grows out of her life and faith. In a world where Christianity tends to settle into certain molds, it's refreshing to hear from followers of Jesus, such as Linnea, who naturally live and work outside these molds. So listen in as Linnea shares how she came to enter an adventure of awe with her maker and how faith and art naturally flow from that adventure. Hey everybody, Jason Link here. Welcome to the Artisan Tree Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Artisan Tree Podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and show notes are found at artisantree.org. Come back often and feel free to connect on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also follow me on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get on to the show. So I was raised in a commune in Oregon in the Cascade Mountain Range, 25 acres. Uh, There were about 75 stable community members. We had A-frames, an organic garden, you know, all the hippy-dippy things. And uh, my mother's Swedish. My parents met in the Jesus People Movement in London. My father was in this glam rock band. And so it was a very unusual childhood. But I remember blissful, sort of unending days playing out in this kind of beautiful, pristine wildness of the Oregon countryside. We, the Applegate River ran through our land. And I remember one morning making, waking up quite early and I would do this quite often. I don't know how much my parents know about this, but I would leave before breakfast <laughs> and wander. And I remember once going down to the river and seeing what looked like a mythical creature propped on one of these low outcroppings of stone in the middle of the river that was covered with this kind of plant that almost looked like hair, like a mop of hair, only, you know, obviously jewel green these kind of lumps coming out of the river and there was you know this bird as big as me standing there and I thought it was a vision like it was the strangest most elegant looking thing I'd ever seen and then it saw me it lifted its wings it was a great blue heron they fly really slowly uh, in the beginning especially when they're first launching and their wingspan is truly staggering especially for a child And I remember like almost having the wind knocked out of me. It was Mm. so beautiful and otherworldly and I had no idea what I was seeing. And I think that that was a crystallizing moment for me because I feel like that kind of innocence and awe is actually available to us at all times. Of course, I later on found out Great Blue Herons, that's the name of this strange (laughs) angel-like creature. Uh, they live nearby, there's a nest of them, etc. I found out all the facts. But the initial experience was so, it was larger than life. It was almost, it was supernatural. It was awe. And I think awe is something we get trained out of, gets flattened by a host of enemies, mm-hmm. small and great. But I think it's a relationship with a maker opens up the possibility of preserving that. Mm-hmm. And more than that, becoming an adventurer mm-hmm. in awe. And I don't mean to be merely inspirational and saying those kinds of things. Hmm. 
I think it's actually hard work to preserve that part of yourself. More than that, preserve it to make it flourish. I think it's important. Mm-hmm. And I'm lucky that in my studio, for the most part, I get the job of pursuing it. So that's my whole story. So here we are with Linnea Spranzi. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Linnea, for being on the show. Of course. My pleasure. <laughs> uh, and you are an artist and specifically a painter. Um, how would you describe your style? Um, the term that I bandy about and try and use as almost a business card is conceptual abstraction, which tends to draw a blank stare from people. (laughs) Some people seem to grasp onto that depending on their experience in the art world. Um, But it is abstraction, but it's based off of a few key ideas that drive every bit of the imagery. Um, And so there's a kind of determination that I have as an artist to be motivated kind of on an invisible wavelength that manifests itself in visible things, uh, which is true. I'd say most art that's worth the time that it takes to make it. <laughs> so that's how I describe it. Okay, so what do you mean by invisible things? Well, I mean, a concept is invisible. Okay. You know, you think about the idea of love or mercy or democracy, and these things are right. ideas that live in people's heads, ideals that they shape their choices around. And I'm, in my work, interested ultimately in the few really abstract things that are deeply buried in the fundamentals of my project. Like, I'm interested in limitation and how it's potentially a driver of freedom. I'm interested in the nature of free will, which, you know, you have to be careful about. That's a long, many-faceted conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. Hmm. Um, But a visualization of Hmm. it in some way. I'm interested in this scientific theory. I'm interested in chaos theory. I'm interested in emergent theory. I'm interested in in fractals, I suppose, in that they um, answer to some of the questions that I'm interested in. I'm interested in, in when known parameters break down or expand into something unpredictable or unknown. And a lot of that interest is actually grounded for me in questions and the idea of God. So those are all fairly invisible, if you ask me. Right. So it makes sense that these abstract ideas need an abstract media. medium. It, it would seem that way. I'm probably going to be of extreme frustration during most of this interview because I'm going to complicate things instead <laughs> okay, of simplify no worries, them. No Occasionally I'll simplify them, but then I'll probably blow them up out of uh, sheer that's fine, glee. That's fine. Um, but the truth is that most of what we call realism, if you look at it from a different angle, and often only a very slightly different angle, um, <clears throat> becomes abstract very quickly. If you turn a thing upside down, it's abstract hmm. for all intents and purposes. If you if you pull apart specific elements um, or rearrange specific elements in even a realistic rendering of something as simple as a landscape, um, pastoral landscape, if you switch things around, it very quickly becomes abstract. And the truth is that certain arrangements we've been trained to identify as and label as realistic. Um, so, yes, abstract language makes sense for abstract concepts, but not always. Because mm-hmm. sometimes reality is far more abstract than any of us realize. Or, we, you know, what's wonderful and perhaps most frustrating about us as human beings is mm-hmm. that we have this tremendous capacity to edit and to name, and then to forget. Hmm. Um, so, you know, we edit out all the information that we don't consider relevant to think, to whatever our goals are. Mm-hmm. And 
then promptly forget about all the extraneous information. Um, and that, to a certain extent, keeps us sane. <laughs> We'd go crazy if we, <laughs> right. you know, constantly kept up with the relentless flow of information that our senses are giving to us. Um, but at the same time, it helps us accomplish anything at all. We also have facility with language that help that works in coordination with our ability to edit, um, where we create icons that are supposed to symbolize right. basically whole complex realities. Hmm. Um, and you know, as a result of our need to get things done, <laughs> right, or to remain sane, um, we make kind of caricatures of what's real. And you know, in my own work, I break things down and try and come up with simple little discrete modular constituent parts and then build up versions of of them that interact with each other that become a kind of internally logical reality um and they seem to to bear resemblance to things we see in our lives or in our world even either either on a micro level or a macro level there's kinds of there's a kind of a zing of familiarity that a lot of the work that I make has. Hmm. So you didn't just imagine this style pop into your head. You, you've probably arrived at this style over a course of years. Or, or was it just like a flash of inspiration? How, how did you get to where you are now as far as your artistic <coughs> your expression? I think you have to be careful about the <clears throat> term style okay. as well because style as such can quickly become facile and not particularly eloquent or authentic, right? So I arrived at the way that I work through a lot, a fair amount of struggle. However, it's possible for anyone to come along and try and cherry pick the kind of vernacular that I've arrived at. But the truth is that in my own work and in the world around me and in trying to make sense of it from a few key moments in my life, I found gaps culturally or in my own thinking and in those gaps realized that I had the opportunity to invent because no one had been there before. No one had tried to find the answers necessarily to mm -hmm. the things I was asking in the way that I was asking them. Hmm. And it's a sad thing to call the invention and the need of that moment merely style. Hmm. It's a lot more than style. Okay. It's, it's urgent hmm. um, and inventive. Hmm. So I arrived at it through that kind of need. Um, if that answers your question. And so it was uh, a lifetime work. As is true of, say, like the plot arc in a novel, there's mm -hmm. different kinds. Mm -hmm. Some are slowly building and it feels like the end results are relentless and inevitable. Some are full of plots, twists and turns that you just don't expect that seem mm -hmm. to come out of nowhere. And both have their satisfactions. My own story, I dramatically changed. I was trained in realism. I have an extraordinary background in rendering the human form, all the way to the point where I dissected cadavers and kind of knew all the Latin nomenclature for muscles and bones and, you know, you know what I needed to know as an artist to be able to render the human form even in my imagination and torque it and turn it and do all this kind of stuff. So, and I got into grad school off the strength of that work. And then within one year, completely changed mm. um, due to circumstances that were life-based and education-based and having to do with spiritual crisis and, mm. you know, all kinds of things like that. So, yeah, you can say it's a life work, but it, it's 
it's not what you expect as far as the life work goes. And I think certainly you can feel resonances, harmonics, echoes of that figurative work um, in what I make now, but it's not self-evident. Mm. It's not an obvious thing. So you're not the first one to tell me that style is not the correct word. I mean, I, sometimes it's like the, it's the lack of vocabulary that we have for things. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm curious about, and I'm, I'm going to try to phrase it in a way, and forgive me if I don't phrase it correctly, is there something that you're trying to accomplish with your art? Or is that is that that is the accomplishment not even the correct idea? Well, I mean, there's a number of ways, levels at which you could answer that question. Mm-hmm. There's certainly something that I want to accomplish in the studio and for my mm-hmm. own satisfaction with every piece and certainly with the, my practice generally. Then there's the additional level of asking, well, what do I want to accomplish in maybe speaking to my cultural moment. And then also, what do I want to accomplish in terms of the art world? These are all different questions that use that same word, Mm -hmm. accomplish, Mm -hmm. or what are you aiming at? And I think that out of the drive for my own understanding, I wanted to articulate something visually that I felt like is kind of on the tip of our tongue collectively in these times, which has to do with the nature of science or the nature of certainty, that we look to the fruits of the scientific method to render for us what is real. Hmm. And there are limits to that. Mm -hmm. But we have not continued to be particularly skilled at recognizing the limits Hmm. that that has. A lot of us, due to a number of, I think, movements in our recent memory as a culture, want to look to science as the exclusive arbiter of what is actual Hmm. in life and and i think that i wanted to pull that apart and actually not 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 on the least in a negative way destroy it but instead show that even in the moments when um you think you know what's supposed to be happening you can be surprised Hmm. um that was my suspicion when i started and that's what i've become certain of Mm-hmm. The more that I work. Have you had the opportunity to see your artwork impact other people? I imagine, I imagine yes. you have. And, and what is that impact on others? Um, you know, it's interesting because the greatest impact is after I talk to the work about the work. Um, there's a whole lot of impact on its own terms without any sort of didactic information or explanation for why it is the way that it is. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that. Like, it's really fun to be at my own shows. And there's an advantage as a fine artist in that it's not clear that I'm responsible for what people are looking at. I don't have a stamp on my forehead that calls me the artist. So yeah. I can have a kind of like um, cloaked presence and really be able to witness people's authentic responses. And that's really gratifying and revelatory, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps not gratifying, <laughs> but certainly revelatory. Um, and, you know, people respond to the work quite well and in strange ways. They always want to see something in it there's this relentless impulse to tie in associations Mm -hmm. to almost domesticate what they're looking at or make sense of it Mm -hmm. um but what i revel in the most is the slippage that it refuses the work i make refuses to identify itself as particularly one thing or the other i think is important but people i mean i can see when i do lectures or even just have a simple studio visit i can see like the knowledge grow in them and the work actually transform in front of them when I sh- show or tell them 
how the pieces are made. And it's normally incredibly positive and uh, opens up new layers of comprehension or contemplation. Yeah, I, I had that feeling too when I was at the Culture Care Conference and you were showing your work on the slideshow and there was uh, that one piece that hung from the ceiling mm-hmm. and it was, um, I don't I don't know exactly what you call it. It's, it's, a, it's sort of like a unique, it's unclassififiable piece and yet it, it was, and you're right, exactly, that's like, your mind wants to domesticate it. Your mind wants to like, okay, I have to, I have to classify this. Is it a, is it a mobile? Is mm-hmm. it a painting? That mm-hmm. it's like, is you, it a drawing? Yes. Is it a sculpture? What is this exactly. thing? Exactly. So let's get into more about your story and your interaction with, uh, with the art. How would you say that your faith and your craft are related to one another? And 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 I and I put the term related because. A lot of people out there feel that faith is over here and art is over here. And how do I, I mean, that's, that's my journey. A lot of the times I thought like, okay, my faith is on one side and then my art is over here. So how do I get these two together? And, and I, I, more, that seems strange to me that you had that dichotomy. It always seems strange to me when people tell me that. And now I'm realizing that that those two work together, mm-hmm. but you know, we live in a compartmentalizing world. Yeah. So, well, yeah, and a world that's shy about personal conviction. Mm-hmm. But the truth is you can't actually grow in an identity unless you start to have some of those. It takes courage in our present moment, though. We all want to somehow remain protoplasmic, which is a bit of a problem. Um, so I would say that there's an artificial tension set up in that kind of polarity because everything depends on how you define art, right? Um, and unfortunately, in... The American experience of faith, I would say outside of Catholicism, which is rooted in something different, or orthodoxy, um, as in Eastern Orthodoxy, um, there is an unfortunate, um, hmm, let's just say patronizing, Mm -hmm. I don't want to use inflammatory language, but (laughs) patronizing view of art as something ornamental Hmm. and illustrative of the greater truths. But the definition of art, as I think God gives it, and our, and our culture seems to get it right better than the church does, hmm. is that it's a deep expression of your very nature. I mean, God made us in his image. Mm-hmm. That was the original making moment. That was the creative moment. And mm-hmm. he stamped himself in matter. Hmm. So there's something about your nature that gets transferred into your work. Actually, no matter, I'd say, what it is, in some way, there's there admittedly some work that people do in the world um, is very rigid, and there's not as much room for your selfhood to you know kind of speak. But in art, it's probably one of the few pure moments that a person has to speak about what they care about truly, genuinely. I would say that most art is ultimately autobiographical. Mm. Um, I would say actually all it's hard to make those emphatic statements but you know like you are making a statement of value when you spend your time doing these things and you're telling me what you think is worth your time and what you think is worth telling other people what you think is worth struggling with and in some ways that's a deep portrait and Mm -hmm. so i cannot understand at all how that would be severed Mm -hmm. from questions of faith i don't even get it Hmm. And I think, think you're right in pointing at the American Christianity has done a really good job of... Yeah, there, you know, there are questions about how that happened. 
but that we don't necessarily want to make this a, like a history lesson. You know, like there's yeah, it's, it's not the easiest thing to figure out because sometimes a lot of our, I mean, our assumptions are invisible to us. That again, mm -hmm. these invisible things are sometimes the most important. <clears throat> but there are reasons we think the way that we think, mm -hmm. and it's really worth the time to try and figure out why. So at the culture conference, you spoke about how you were a mentor to art students. And could you tell us about that experience? And like, what was it, what was it like to mentor them in, in that capacity as opposed to like, you know, a traditional pastor? Yeah, I think that the key difference is that art is so closely associated with questions of faith and how you're thinking because, you know, art is an externalization or a manifestation of the deep inner meditations of your heart and mind. Um, so there's added intensity because of that. Um, and I happen to know and care about both streams of influence in these young artists' lives. They happened, a lot of them, to be people of faith. Not all of them. Mm -hmm. um, but I also comprehended that their, their faith, for all intents and purposes, was being forged in an, art, an arts education. Hmm. And in that forging process, there were not the same standards that there would be in the church. Hmm. And so you end up with a tremendous amount of, of dissonance and questioning. Hmm. And I fully get that. And I think that in and of itself, in sort of a passive way, without saying anything before I even got into these relationships with these young artists, the simple fact that I was productive as an artist and seemed to be whole in my thinking, spirit, and work is a signal of hope that these things are possible, that synthesis is possible. You can have tension. Tension is life-giving, but you don't need you know, cacophony of like dissonant, wild voices in your life, you can actually like find a way through. It's productive. So I think that that fact passively was in and of itself a huge encouragement to a lot of these young people. And I did hear this from people. It's a little bit hard to like <laughs> try and define how you influenced people. That's really hard to do hmm. from your own perspective. It's right. up to them to tell me, hmm. but I did hear that on occasion more than a few times. I think also really earnestly engaging with the questions of, of the practical outcomes of a faith, not only the abstract ones. Um, you know, how do we live then if we believe these things? And what does it mean to have an imagination that's informed by something much more vast than the styles or trends of the present moment or the thinking of the most recent philosopher? or artist. The Christian faith calls you to do a lot of hard work, but also to submit your imagination to the influences of the things that are beyond the present moment. Um, and that's exciting. Hmm. And I think, right. I think I tried to make that clear in the lives of a lot of the people that I had a moment with. Mm -hmm. So, and, and you talk about submitting. Um, I remember at the Culture Care Conference, you talked about how there was a moment where you thought, God, is art something you want me to or this craft, something you want me to give up and mm -hmm. do something else? Like, what was that moment? What was that struggle like? Because I imagine there are people who also have that struggle. So I think it'd be helpful if you share mm -hmm. what was that moment like for you? I'm terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, heart-stopping. Again, that was a statement of value, of recognizing that a person, a very passionate person, or even the most talented person, doesn't have to be overmastered by that thing. But actually there's a greater one who has more prerogative on your life. Mm -hmm. And I needed that experience. Um, so that was worth it was worthwhile. I don't 
think, I have to be careful with this, because you can live under a lot of unfortunate and very unhelpful mythologies that are comforting culturally. Like, you know, the mythology of being an artist who works in their closet and one day, you know, gets all the fame they deserve or, mm. you know, there's all kinds of versions and, and you really have to be careful to not do your work under the fumes of that kind of fuel mm. um, and toxify you. Mm. You have to know why you're doing what you're doing. Mm. And I think that that moment really made clear for me why it was that I was supposed to be doing what I was doing. It, and the reason why is because God made me a certain way. Mm. And it gave him glory and pleasure for me to be how I was made, to act out of how I'm made mm. uh, in my life. It gives me pleasure, it gives me pleasure. And it's productive. Um, it seems to do good in the world. Uh, but it's also not the most important thing about me. Hmm. And I think that that's a really important hierarchy to establish in your life. And thank you for sharing your sure. story and your experience with us uh, in art. Absolutely. Thank Welcome you. Day, everybody. <laughs> this has been the Artisan Tree Podcast. For more information, you can visit artisantree.org or epicjason.com. Thank you for listening and be blessed.